Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Mattel. And I'm so excited to have my guest on today. My guest today founded Canamobs in 2013 after her daughter, Delilah, was diagnosed with an aggressive brain cancer and she discovered that cannabis provided much needed relief in her daughter's care. She's a strong proponent of taking rights of one's own body and health and putting it back in the hands and in the homes of the patients and their caregivers as she fights diligently alongside those with the same mission and message for legislatures across the country to change the, the federal and the state level. Mariah Barnhart, thanks so much for being a guest on today's Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. I really enjoyed the show before, and I'm sure it's going to be just as good. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I got to tell you something. Uh, your message and your story, though, is becoming better known. I'd like you to kind of maybe back up a second and retell it so that people understand what turned you into the advocate that you are. And before we even ask that that question, honestly, why don't you tell me, how's your daughter doing? Um, Dahlia's doing great. She will be on her fourth trial at St. Jude, technically fifth, um, coming next month. So she's been on treatment the majority of her diagnosis, which was eight years ago when she was two with brain cancer. And she you know, has endured, I think, more than so many kids could have lived through, probably because of cannabis. Right. Okay. Now let's, let's back up for a second. Let's talk a little bit about it. She got diagnosed with a brain tumor, again, brain cancer two years ago. And what sent you down the path of even looking into cannabis to begin with? Well, and sorry, I probably worded that confusingly, but she was two when she was diagnosed. And so that was many years ago. And she just immediately wasn't doing well. So mm -hmm. this was a situation where kids diagnosed with something like cancer don't get diagnosed until they're already really bad off. So generally it's progressed enough because kids are so resilient. It has to be pretty progressed for them to be showing major signs and symptoms. So they have flu-like symptoms. They go back and forth from the doctor. Dahlia's case was she never slept. So the first couple years of her life, she never slept. She was hyperactive. They wanted to diagnose her with ADHD and medicate her with psychotropic legal psychiatric medications when she was two. And that didn't sound right to me. I knew I had raised other children before my own biological children. She has an older brother. I knew that this something was wrong. She started to be clumsy. They were saying that that comes with growth spurts. And again, it's not just a gut feeling. It's also experience. I knew that these things weren't normal, but the pediatricians weren't concerned. So finally, I waited because every time you go to the emergency room with you know, symptoms that aren't that grave, they send you to the pediatrician's office. So I waited for the pediatrics office to close. And um, by that point, she actually had progressed in symptoms from flu-like symptoms to almost seizure-like symptoms. So I took her into the emergency room and said, I thought she had been having seizures because they'll do a CAT scan right away. And that was all it took. Um, you know, poor guy lost all the color in his face when he had to come tell me there was just this large mass in her brain. And just by looking at it without any type of biopsy, they could tell it was cancerous. There was just no way for something to be that overgrown in a two-year-old's brain without it being cancerous. So we were and, taken and, by Sorry. Well, so yeah, for a second, because, you know, and, and this may be information that you can give out to another parent, but 
as you were getting those diagnoses or those prognoses earlier before they actually did the CAT scan, was there any way for you to demand a CAT scan or MRI? <clears throat> no. You basically have to have a really good relationship with your children's doctor and have them trust you, which as we know with women, uh, we aren't often trusted to relay our own health problems. So when we're dealing with our children, we're considered even less trustworthy. We're exaggerating. We're making something out of nothing. And, and really, I've experienced, I love my children's doctor. He's actually still their pediatrician for 16 years now. And I think he has a really good heart and he's really good at what he's trained to do, but they're not specialists. They're not, they're actually trained to tell you everything's okay and not to worry because most things aren't going to be as grave as brain cancer. It's such a rarity that any pediatrician is going to see a brain cancer child in his life. You know what I mean? So most of the time you are, you know, freaking out about something that's really not that deadly, a rash or, you know, in my daughter's case, you know, weird symptoms that didn't seem related at all that came and went. Um, she was a little shaky. So I thought she had blood sugar issues. I have a long history of diabetes in my family, but her blood sugar was never above or below what it should be. I had that tested many times with her um, lack of balance. I feel that that would have warranted an MRI. And eight years later, in today's world, with all of the technology at our fingertips that we have, the research that people have done, the knowledge that's spread, I feel like it would m more likely be done today with those kinds of symptoms. But eight years ago, what I knew, you know, I knew nothing. I would never have suspected of all of the things I could have imagined, I never would have suspected cancer. And so, you know, once they, they came back to you and he walked out, you know, flush and looked you in the face and said, oh my God, she has a brain tumor. What was your first reaction? Um, to be honest, it was mostly logical and robotic. And I think that that's somewhat normal in trauma. I called my parents and asked them to pick my car up from the parking lot of the hospital. On the ambulance ride to the next hospital, I called my boss and said I didn't think I would be in to work on Monday. Um, of course, afterwards, everyone points out how silly some of these things were that they even realized at the time, like, why are you calling me in an ambulance? when your daughter is, you know, potentially on her deathbed. And um, at the next hospital, they had a team of some of the world's leading, you know, scientists and neurologists and uh, people coming in in the middle of the night. And so I knew that this was bad, but it wasn't until they sedated her for her next testing and MRIs that you get to visually see like that's, it's like watching a child die when their body goes limp and they weren't they're prepared. You know, a little two-year-old doesn't know how to lay down and relax before they're being sedated. So watching her go from sitting up and being alert to completely sedated, I think for me, it almost triggered me to be in present time and realize that this was a very bad situation. Mm -hmm. And so what do they start her with to begin with? They started her in an experimental chemotherapy protocol. Is that right? Right. Well, actually, they initially had to do a little debulking of the tumor. So the size of the tumor was actually going to kill her if we didn't get a, at least some of it out. They couldn't get much out. But what they did get was significant for the pressure buildup and fluid that it was causing in her skull. But that caused partial paralysis. She was unable to eat, walk or talk. She was swollen. She had this giant you know, opening in her skull. 
And from there, we were given very few options as what the next step would be. It was chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation, period. And if I had declined any of those that the doctors saw fit to be the next step, they would take custody. They told me this. They take custody of your child. They undergo those treatments without you. So really, you know, the only thing you want for your child at this point is for them to be comfortable and feel safe and loved as much as possible. So we took her up to Memphis where she was started on experimental chemotherapy while she was still intubated. She had been stopping breathing and having really difficult resuscitations the week that we got there. This is all in her first month of diagnosis. And she was started on chemotherapy while intubated and experienced every symptom and side effect of half a a dozen, you know, harsh high dose chemotherapy drugs. Everything from, you know, what, uh, uh, partial paralysis to atrophy, nausea, she loses her hair. Um, Yeah, at this point, she had already had her head shaved twice, once, you know, halfway for a surgery, and then halfway for another surgery, she had had several surgeries through her skull that first month. And as we started the chemotherapy, sores from the tips of her lips down her entire GI tract. Um, So then you can no longer eat or drink, you're not hydrated, you don't have enough nutrients, then they're threatening you with a feeding tube. She had atrophy of both legs, she was unable to walk. Um, And so I mean, it was pretty severe pretty early on. And to me, in this country, we don't think of our healthcare like that. It was like out of a black and white 1930s psychiatric ward movie showing the horrors of the history of psychiatry. You know, it wasn't something you would expect to see now in America. So this is now you've gone through, now you're in two months of this back to back to back to back to back, just surgery after surgery. And, and, and one doctor saying this, another doctor saying that, where did the idea of cannabis come from in your mind? It had already been sent to me and discussed with me several times at the onset. So the stories that I had gotten were for other adults. They were on adults who used cannabis to help ease nausea and vomiting. That's the big mystery of the medical world is chemo-induced nausea and vomiting. There's really no anti-emetic that works for that. And for pain. So there was a lot of information being sent to me on adults who used cannabis for pain, adults who used cannabis for different things. And when you say a lot of information being sent to you, this is being sent to you from people who are are watching your story? Yeah. So one of my childhood church friends' wives, now as adults, and a cousin of mine, and a sibling of mine, and I mean, I, I don't know if I had mentioned it with the ketogenic diet earlier on. I had just really lucked out in having access to scientists who had been doing a plethora of research on different things. I wanted to start around the ketogenic diet, but there were no dietary restrictions allowed. I looked into graviola, but the only form of that plant that has chemotherapy properties is also neurotoxic. Wait, when so- you say there were, no, there were no, no dietary restrictions allowed, what do you mean? The doctor so told a child, you to put on a, chemo, on a ketogenic diet? Right. So anywhere in the United States where you have a pediatric cancer hospital, if you go in and discuss with the medical staff there, those children are to be given whatever they will eat, um, especially if they're as bad off as Dahlia was. There's just getting anything. So they could, you know, have a plate full of fries to them was better than nothing because the alternative is TPN. And TPN goes through their port 
it's, it's a liquid feed, right? And it's pure sugar. So no matter what, at this point, sugar is what these children are being fed for sure. Right. right. Wow. So I, I, it just, it just blows my mind that you have literally no input. Yeah. I mean, they definitely, it's a psychological game for sure. Looking back on it, they try to make you feel a part of what's going on. But what I tell parents now is you are the leader of your child's team, but you also have to know how to play the game because I could write an entire book on how not to lose your child to CPS. So you'll see stories that will get picked up by media, but they're happening all the time, whether it's seizures, special needs, autism spectrum disorders, these children, we are much more prone to have government involvement in our lives. If these children injure themselves, we get an investigation done. If these children become aggressive, we get an investigation done. So CPS is already likely to be involved in our lives. And it's a very scary situation to be in to know that you're being watched all the time. I mean, I had an emergency room doctor threaten to call CPS on me or Child Protective Services. I don't know what it's called now, but uh, for my daughter pulling her line out while we were in the emergency room because her children don't pull their own lines out. Well, any chemotherapy uh, patient, pediatric patient, mother can tell you they do that all the time after they've done this for months and years. They can pull a needle straight out of their own body. It doesn't bother them. But this emergency room doctor was so convinced that my daughter couldn't have taken her IV or her own port access out that she was going to call and have my daughter taken from my care while they investigated this. And you weren't even in the room when that happened, right? Um, I'm, I probably was at the nurse's desk, and that may be what saved me from, from all of the rest of the drama. And I happen to know the board of that hospital, some of the prominent board members. Most parents aren't as lucky as me being able to access Raphael Meshulam in Israel, being able to access the world's leading doctors and scientists, being able to access board members of hospitals. And that's why I do what I do is because everyone should have the same privilege and a level playing field. And if I can give my knowledge or connections to every other parent so that we all have the same information and education and ability, that would be my hope. So, okay. So now you're, you're two months in and you've been doing some research and people have been reaching out to you and giving you information. Did you come into the hospital and suggest to the doctor, look, I heard about, you know, uh, Simpson oil. I heard about, you know, CBD and cannabis treatments helping to affect cancer, especially pediatric cancer. And, and you know, uh, here, by the way, take a look. This is the, the, the patent that the U.S. government has on it. I mean, I don't know if you did that or not, but um, clearly you went in and spoke to somebody. What was the first reaction? Well, so the information that had been sent to me early on was in a flurry of other information. These were articles, random passing, you know, someone's personal testimonial, something I'm giving right now, right, which can be meaningful and impactful, but it wasn't going to do anything for these doctors. So in the mix of this discussion, ketogenic diet was out, graviola was out. There were a lot of other things along the way that I had looked into, high dose vitamin C, etc. I happened to have some experience with this prior, so I knew which ones I could mark off as absolute not going to work, right? But the other things I had to really research and look into, cannabis was the only thing left time and again. So I had initially brought this to our doctors without thinking much of it. It was just packed into, you know, a dozen other options of things that might help. And time and time again, I was told it's 
you know, if it was real, we'd already have it, you know. So I had to go find access to Dr. Raphael Mishulam, access to Dr. El Soli down at the University of uh, Mississippi. I had to reach out to every scientist I had ever had any type of access to. Every medical professional who wasn't in the United States where science and research was being banned. I did pull up uh, Bill Clinton's signature on the patent application for cannabinoids as neuroprotectants and antioxidants. I pulled all this information together and made it as scientifically feasible as possible. And right at the brink of that, months of this research, because I started my federal Obama petitioning, that administration, et cetera, about two and a half months into Dahlia's diagnosis from her hospital bed with a, a laptop. And so I had already been really hardcore on the fact that even if this didn't work for us, why don't I have access? Why don't I have the right and options for her care as her parent in the United States of America? That I knew early on was an issue, but whether cannabis was going to work or not, I wouldn't know until we tried it. So she went into another emergency surgery a few months into treatment. And because of her history of stopping breathing and having difficult resuscitations, and it being an emergency surgery where they didn't have a lot of anything prepared for her ahead of time, she went through a surgery to have a second shunt placed in her skull, which they opened the skull up, put a device in there that drains the fluid and pressure buildup down to her stomach. So it goes down a tube into her stomach. This is a permanent device. This is a very serious surgery. And she could have no pain medicine when she woke up from that surgery. And at that point, watching this now just turned three-year-old innocent little baby, this miniature human being lay in this bed with all of these emotions, being unable to voice their fear, not knowing why you're torturing them or letting these strangers torture them. And the fact that she can voice anything, but just these slow tears started to pour down her face. She was in excruciating pain. All she could do was scream and cry. Nobody was going to stop me. At that point, they knew that I had already had access to cannabis being sent to me illegally. We went from Florida, our home state, to Tennessee for care at St. Jude. Both of those states were illegal, but we were just at a place in history where people had been making stuff in their kitchens, and there was a very down low black market that was a different type of black market than the financial one that we're used to talking about. And I'd been really lucky that people had sent me products, and I had a few to choose from, and I started around cannabis after that, knowing there was nurses in the hallway crying. There were doctors, you know, hugging me and couldn't imagine if this was their child. Nobody was going to allow this inhumanity, like with her coming out of three, having no pain meds, being in this excruciating pain. At this point, what would be the point to save her life? Why are you trying to save her life when it's this miserable, when it clearly has no quality of life left? So... But did, did anybody threaten you at that point in time, though, about uh, no. administering some? No. No. And I, I'd like to warn other parents that I, you know, everyone's circumstance is different. Had there been any other situation prior to that, which I started around cannabis, positive, I would have had legal issues. This just happened to be a situation that was so inhumane, which is why I go forward with these messages is because no other parent should be backed into a corner with no other options and their child in that severe of pain and suffering before they can try this. 
Crazy. And so now you started her on it, and this is what, six months into her treatments that you started her on it? Yeah, it was almost exactly six months, actually. Yep. Got it. And you started, uh, clearly it was probably a tincture or something oral. How, how did you administer it? Well, we had a few different products for her at that time. We had edibles that I never ended up using um, just because of the circumstances in the hospital. But yeah, we had, I had both concentrates and tinctures as well as a magical butter machine. I could take concentrates and lower the dose and make sure for her. Okay. And then what did you start to notice? I mean, were you, were you the first time you gave it to her, did you see anything significant happen or no? Yeah, I started her on a really, really low dose of THC and a much higher dose of CBD because at that time, something that doesn't get discussed even a lot today was enhancing cytotoxic uptake as a side effect of CBD, whether you're joining it with radiation or chemotherapy and nerve and brain damage. So she had suffered from chemotherapy and surgery, pretty significant brain damage. And then she also had body from some of the chemotherapy. So I started on a very high CBD, low THC product. The THC is probably a lot higher than what you might think. Some of these parents start with the tinctures and the hemp oils and stuff. But I saw some of the benefits that I didn't think you would see without a higher dose THC. So pain was immediate. She started eating and drinking. She didn't have to get fluid anymore. She never had to get a feeding tube. The atrophy started to dissipate. She started to walk again within a short period of time. Above and beyond everything was just that she woke up that next morning having slept for the first time in her entire life, because even before diagnosis, she never slept. And she was rested and happy to be alive. And that was the first time I had seen her really happy to be here in this world with us since her diagnosis. So now, did you say anything to any doctors about what you were doing? What was their reaction to and how do they explain you know, the fact that she appeared to be getting a little better. Yes, I guess that's a three-part answer because one, I was nervous. I was nervous if there were any interactions. The pharmacists who normally know about drug interactions didn't really have a lot of information on this. I wanted to make sure that it was charted so that if anything were to happen, we would know, you know, what to associate it to if there were interactions with other drugs, et cetera. But secondly, this was uncharted territory. And I knew that other parents were going to come after me and they were going to want this information. And I felt that it was much more reliable if the hospital actually charted what we were doing. And I also felt it offered a little legal protection. If I was telling her medical professionals what we were doing, the legal repercussions would likely be less. Should I get in any type of trouble for what, what was illegal from start to finish, importing and exporting concentrate as a federal felony, um, so with those kinds of things in the background, I wanted to make sure that at least I could prove that I had my daughter's best interest at heart so as not to maybe custody of her. But the third part of that is nobody gave cannabis any hope. There was no potential for these medical professionals that this was going to be this cure-all that everybody was praising it to be. And, you know, her results were immediate. And her doctor, as you know, an extremely well-respected neuro-oncologist, pediatric neuro-oncologist, which is even rarer, working at the world's leading children's research hospital, about three months later, she wrote me an email to tell me that she was leaving 
to go head up cannabis research for other children like my daughter. And she moved out of state um, twice to two different hospitals. She was on the governor's commission uh, pushing for cannabis, for the options for cannabis in the state of Georgia. She's worked with thousands of children since then, including in the state of Arizona. And watching that one child, you know, for me, my, saving my daughter's life and quality of life as her mother is my number one priority. But knowing that in doing that pu publicly, that it then went on, people moved and changed opinions. And now there's thousands of other children benefiting from this one doctor having that change of heart and mind. And Trace, did the doctor decide clearly that with this intervention, this is what made the difference? It wasn't something that just was happening by itself. It was the intervention of cannabis that made the difference. Yeah, it's indisputable. Now, if you're going to have a doctor looking to sound professional to her peers and colleagues, most doctors and scientists are going to be very careful in saying, we just don't know. Just like with some cancers, there's spontaneous remission, and we absolutely don't know. Sometimes people start on diets, and they say that because of that diet, they went into remission, and very few doctors are going to believe them, right? But this doctor witnessed with her own eyes that this kid who had been suffering before diagnosis for the first two years of her life with the not sleeping and having these other symptoms and immensely on her deathbed type suffering for six months since her diagnosis, there was nothing else to explain how well she did after starting on cannabis. Wow. And now at this point in time, you're at St. Jude's and you're, you're doing this. Everything. You ended up having to become almost a cannabis refugee, right? You moved temporarily to Colorado. Yeah, actually, just within the first uh, month of her starting on cannabis, she did so well that I was no longer fearful for her life and my care outside of the hospital. The hospital also agreed, and they let me take her to Colorado under the agreement that I would continue her care at home and take her to our local hospital to have them work with St. Jude on the trial that she was on. And we we did end up going to Colorado. We were refugees there and we were isolated with no family or friends. It was not the euphoria that, you know, documentaries that came out after all of this in that time period, ironically, um, would, would have led someone to believe it was $3,000 for an appropriate amount of oil that was created on the legal market. It was very expensive. It was untested products a lot of the time, products that were not created to help parents like myself. I had to figure out our dosing. Um, and again, just for the, the kindness of people who weren't on the legal market, we made it through a few months there and decided if we're gonna do this illegally, we might as well do it in our home state where my daughter has access to the family that loves her because we don't know how this is gonna go. Gotcha. And this is what really started you. Now, of course, people are starting to hear about your story. Is this what started you in forming, you formed your first advocacy group? Yes. Yeah, so throughout my entire life, any cause that was brought to my doorstep, I felt strongly that you can no longer close your eyes to it. So I stopped eating meat when I was six. I stopped eating dairy when I was a teenager. I was in the Citizens Commission on Human Rights when I was 10. I worked on female genital mutilation issues. And I was very involved in activism from a young age. Um, this wasn't inside my family. My family is nothing like that. But I happened to be so lucky to have outside influences from school and church, et cetera, 
that just took my personality and ran with it. So for me, cannabis was never on my radar. I had very little education on all of the wide array of injustices that surround the war on drugs. Uh, it really had to be brought to my doorstep in this manner for me to fully open my eyes and see what this was. And that's what prompted you to start Cannamoms. Well, what prompted me to start Cannamoms was twofold. One, I never wanted another parent to say this was a last resort because their child had suffered so immensely that they were now willing to break the law. I wanted a, a parent to say this was a first option because it was the safest and have legal access. And I wanted to give them kind of a blueprint, how to dose, how to read test results. So in one sense, it was simply for parents like myself. But in another sense, I saw that the heartstrings that these stories were pulling on were making really huge differences. I had Republican legislators in the state of Florida bring me behind closed doors and tell me they may or may not agree with this, but they're voting on behalf of this because publicly it would look so bad after you know they had heard my story to go against this. Or And I just started to see that interweaving of how this was really impacting behind the scenes legislation and going for medical, right? And so bringing other parents out of the shadows to speak with us was really important because nobody wants to hear the same story over and over again. Even sometimes when I'm telling Dahlia's story, I'm like, I'm sick of hearing my own story. You want all these different stories of different types of people with different ailments, different ages, so that something resonates, right? At some point, someone resonate with someone, whether it's Crohn's or cancer or, you know, all of these different things that people are going through. If we've got all of these voices coming out and talking about their personal stories, then we can get the medical professionals and scientists to bring the research and back up what these people's personal stories show. That to me was going to be key to medical legislation. And, and again, one more time, how is Dahlia doing now? Uh, she's doing great. She is on her upcoming, on her fourth, technically fifth trial at St. Jude. So she's actually been on treatment the majority of the past eight years. And you would never know. She has a full head of hair. She's happy as can be. She very rarely complains or experiences excruciating pain or any of those types of symptoms. Is the cancer still there? So what we believe is that the, she would notice with two different types of cancer, which is just a made up diagnosis. But one of those would have been incurable, high grade, um, a high grade glioma. So she was diagnosed with something called anaplastic pilocytic astrocytoma. So while no normal person knows what that is, anyone who understands these types of diagnosis, anaplastic astrocytoma would be considered incurable. Pilocytic astrocytoma would be considered low grade, so similar to Sophie Ryan. Um, and that's actually almost on the optic pathway as well. So very, very similar. The high grade has been, we believe, dead since the first year. And I attribute a large part of that to adding cannabis. Like I said, it enhances cytotoxic uptake. So I think adding that to the chemotherapy killed those cells. That would be our hope. Eight years later that we have seen no growth that looks high grade. The only growth that we've seen to date looks low grade. And low grade chemotherapy and cannabis and anything that works like chemotherapy attacks fast growing cells. So slow growing cells theoretically would be a better diagnosis because it's less aggressive, less deadly, et cetera. But the downside to that is it responds less to aggressive treatment. 
uh, aggressive treatments going after the fast growing cells. So these slow growing cells, we have seen disease progression uh, multiple times in the last eight years. Nothing that has demanded, you know, immediate urgent care or surgeries. In fact, we're on a wait and watch right now because I'm waiting for a trial that I like to open up uh, because it's not like this is growing fast enough to be, you know, considered urgent. Wow. And she is doing well. She's acting like a typical where she's eight now. How old is she now? Ten? Dahlia is going to be 11 this year. So she's 10. 11. She's acting like a typical 11-year-old? Yeah, of course there are going to be issues that we were worried about very early on. She no longer shows um, any major symptoms of paralysis. She walks just fine. She talks like an adult. Um, She has some issues, but a lot of those are hospital-related. When a kid's in the hospital belong, they're not going to be caught up on their ABCs and math, things that really just don't matter all that much to me. She's you would never know. She's happy. She laughs all day. She watches TV and paints and does all of the things that you would expect a 10-year-old to enjoy doing. Right. Now, you founded a new organization recently called WISE, right? Talk to us about it. It's Women's Initiative for uh, what? What's, what does it stand for? Safe and Equitable Florida. So this is going to be our home state focused. Um, it is similar to Canna Moms in that I think that we saw what Canna Moms did for medical when you're talking about critically and chronically ill children. And I think that these moms that you're going to see who are founding this organization, the Women's Initiative for a Safe and Equitable Florida, they're also mothers, but they are specifically educated on major points of um, the war on drugs, prohibition, the harms that this causes in different communities for different reasons. So just as I used to say the war on drugs is killing our children, meaning lack of access to cannabis was killing our children, these moms can say the war on drugs is killing our children in a different way. And we would hope that the same audience that listened to our stories about our sick children listen to these moms' concerns for their children and why all mothers should want the war on drugs to end. It is crazy in the state of Florida. I think people do not recognize how just ridiculous the law has been down here. After, you know, we live in a state where, you know, the the people have spoken and, you know, they voted in, you know, adult use here. But before that, medical use was here. And legislation down here tried every way they could to thwart its, its advancement from the one period of time trying to determine the delivery devices from, you know, whether or not you were able to do it using um, what suppositories was a period of time here where they were trying to force that issue. And now there's an issue going on in the state of Florida about capping the amount of THC as, as ridiculous as that is. And that's really has nothing to do with anybody's impression about it as an efficacy medication or that the levels of THC are harmful. They're just trying to see if they can hit the, industry and it's just going to force us all back into a black market. What do you think of right. what, what are your biggest concerns about what's going on in Florida right now? Uh, well, as we've seen since day one, this for me started in 2013. At the beginning of 2014, I think legislators were pretty clear on the fact that they would have to bend to some degree. So they passed the low THC cannabis bill which was modified hemp. You can buy hemp all day long online. So they were trying to make it illegal to buy hemp so that you had to sign up for a registry and feel like you were using 
you know, full strength cannabis in the state of Florida. And they thought that that was going to offset the public's belief that we needed broader legislation because they knew if they didn't do what they promised us they would do, we would pass the constitutional amendment. So I continued to work with legislators. They would not pass broader, uh, which they had promised to do. They would not pass broader legislation. We passed the constitutional amendment. They immediately put a ban on smoking. They regulated everything from, like you said, the uh, devices of administration having to come solely from vertically integrated MMTCs in the state of Florida to how much cannabis you could purchase per month and what the dosing could be. And now you're seeing year after year, this THC cap is not new. We've seen it before. I know you've seen it before. Uh, we talked about it last year, actually. And they're trying to redefine what cannabis medicine means. They're trying to put it in a box, um, push it down and capitalize off of it. And we're just not going to have that. They're getting us closer and closer to being forced to pass adult use legislation, whether people wanted to or not. There were some people who were entirely pro-medical and that was it. But those people have seen how difficult they have made this for patients and caregivers that they're willing to say, let's just broaden the legislation to get these people, um, you know, less able to continue to try to force these restrictions. And I mean, what, you must have been like so many others, you know. Um looking forward to what is now the new administration that's in place in Washington, D.C., because of some of their open comments, I think publicly, but at the same time, I will tell you, I was really, uh, have always been very leery of the, the two new uh, president and vice president because, you know, their approach is let's uh, decriminalize. And decriminalization still means criminalization in my mind. So, to look at something saying, well, I'm going to take some of the, the harsher approaches to criminalization away, but I'm still going to tell you that you're a criminal if you do something that's using a medication. That, to me, I thought was just asinine to begin with. And then number two, you know, we have a president of the United States who still believes that cannabis could possibly be a gateway drug. Number three, we have a vice president who probably incarcerated more people than any of the previous you know, AGs in her state before she became AG. Um, she incarcerated more before and after she became AG. So I really haven't looked at this administration as, as very hopefully. How about you? Uh, I think that on a personal level, your assessment is totally correct. These are people who behind the scenes believe whatever it is they believe, who have throughout their professional careers not helped this cause at all. Um, but this is what's popular now, right? There's a right side of change. And with all of this advocacy, you doing the kinds of stuff you've done, uh, parents like myself talking about the war on drugs, um, injuring children in so many different ways. These things have pushed this forward to where people know there's only one right side of change. And that's why Obama used this in the campaign as a talking point for what he was going to do when in office. If he doesn't fulfill that, I do think that it's going to be, uh, irreparable repercussions. I don't think people are going to turn a blind eye, forgive or forget. So unless they pull out some crazy cards to try to turn people's attention elsewhere, I don't think anyone's forgetting. I think even the most prominent Republican legislators in the state of Florida behind closed doors have told me they believe that there will be major changes to both prohibition and the war on drugs in general within the first year of this administration. 
Well, I mean, from your um, lips to God's ears, I keep my fingers crossed and hope that you're right. Um, but what what throws me a little bit is that when you look across this nation, a lot of people don't recognize that, you know, the true winner on November 3rd wasn't necessarily, you know, uh, Donald Trump leaving office and Biden going in. It was cannabis across the country. You know, five states passed, you know, new legislation, you know, allowing for cannabis. But then the pushback has been ridiculous. You look at, you know, South Dakota, where, you know, the legislation there is trying to overturn the will of the people. You look at New Jersey, where, you know, the governor just signed last week a bill supporting the moving forward of their, you know, uh, bill that uh, or they're signing or their vote. Um, but um, there seems to be so much pushback that I'm really just, it just shocks me. And the fact that I'm just saying but on, you know, the 6th of uh, uh, February, when we had the, you know, protests and, you know, demonstrations at the Capitol, nobody talks about the fact that a lot of those people who are supposedly so disgruntled at this government of ours were smoking a lot of pot when they walked in the door of the Capitol. There's a lot of cannabis being smoked, a lot of big cannabis being smoked in that crowd in front of Donald Trump, while he was giving a speech. Nobody even addresses that. Nobody even talks about that. And it throws me, I wonder why. And I, of course, I would, I would hate to have cannabis associated with, you know, a protest of that nature. But at the same time, it was part, that means that's, it's, it's part of every side of the conversation in this country. Right. So the left took this as a platform issue for a long time. And eventually they had to relinquish that because it was no longer a partisan issue. But the left stance was often on, you know, rights. And you take way further than that, that you are disproportionately harming communities of color. This is a way to implement discrimination um, because cops have discretion in who they enforce these laws on and don't, et cetera. Now, the right is seeing this as the new amendment, too. I want to hold my gun and grow my pot, right? So no matter what side of the aisle you're on, whether it's coming from I want to save the world to I just want to be left alone in my own home to do what I want, everyone is in agreement that these laws are tyrannical and nobody's going to tolerate a tyrannical government in the United States of America. We have been blindly doing so for many decades. And now I think that the last few decades of social media, technology, I think that we knew that that time was going to come to an end and that that time is now. Well, I got to tell you, I can't thank you enough, Mariah, for being a part of Let's Be Blunt today. Um, if there was one last thing you would uh, message you'd want to give to parents, what would it be? Especially a parent in the same situation that you were caught in. So a parent caught in the same situation I was caught in would be to be the leader of your child's team. That's loaded obviously there's more to that than than it seems you want to be careful and tread lightly you want friends with as many people as you can be friends with but at the end of the day you have to remember that child is the only one in the world for you these doctors might see thousands of those children but for you it's the only one you have to take charge i think one of the things that i i take away from you that i really really respect a lot of and that is uh, when you start telling your story, and first off, don't ever think that you've told your story too much because, you know, we could hear your story again and again and again and again and again. And I think the nation should hear your story again and again and again and again. 
But I think one of the things that you really hit home is the fact that you had researched and you had looked into and you had tried to get as much information as you possibly could get um, uh, from people who were sending you information from around the world and people who are like-minded who were just trying to share with you their thoughts. I think, you know, that's one of the biggest areas that I think I blame our industry for, honestly, and that is lack of information. Though we do a great job from an advocacy standpoint, giving out information that pertains to our personal stories, we just don't fill the chasm with enough pertinent information like yesterday the fact that there's been a now you know a um, observational study approved uh, for looking at cannabis and PTSD that's been approved here in the United States that will now move forward with a group of veterans in Southern California and Israel so we are allowing for these kinds of studies to happen because the FDA and our government recognizes how efficacious cannabis is the more and more and more we put this in people's faces, the more and more we talk about the fact that, you know, there is a U.S. patent 6630507-1B that talks about the neuroprotective capabilities that our government discovered in cannabis over 25 years ago. The more and more we talk about things like this, the more and more people can't refute the facts and they can't refute science. I happen to be one who happens to think that, you know, all I kept hearing out of President Biden's mouth during the election or during the campaign and then when he was president-elect is that I'm going to prove to you that we're an administration that believes in science. Well, if that's true, then believe in the science that's been funded by our government for now almost 70 years. And that science has proved unequivocally that cannabis is an efficacious drug for a myriad of issues and a myriad of reasons. And people need to get off this stuck and stop denying us access to efficacious medications. We're politicizing science. We have done that throughout history, the entire history of this country. We have politicized science, which leads to bad medicine. It's time that it ends. Absolutely. Well, people like you will help make this happen. I can't thank you enough for being here. Um, you're always welcome here on Let's Be Blunt with Mata. Anytime you want to be able to give us an update on what's going on and give us an update on Dahlia, please do. We'd love to hear how she's doing, and I want to make sure she stays safe. Prayers will go out to her and you and your family. Thank you so much for having me back. I love this show. I love talking with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Make sure you tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt with Mata. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.